0: Support for this episode of Judaism Unbound comes from the Ashman Family JCC in Palo Alto, California, whose vision is to be the architects of the Jewish future. The Ashman Family JCC empowers you to experience Jewish paths toward a life of joy, purpose, and meaning through innovative Jewish learning and wellness programs, community building, and initiatives to develop the next generation of Jewish leaders. Learn more at www.paloaltojcc.org. This is Judaism Unbound, episode two hundred sixty-two, Marvel's Torah. Welcome back, everyone. I'm Dan Liebenson, and I'm Lex Rothberg. And before we jump into today's interview, just wanted to remind you that Purim is coming up one week from today, the day that this episode is released. And I think Purim more or less begins the second cycle of Jewish holidays that we have experienced during this COVID quarantine period. Last year, Purim was in early March. I'm trying to remember. I think it was basically a week before quarantine really happened in a big way. And for some of us, it may be the last Jewish holiday that we're experiencing in the first year of quarantine. And in any event, Purim last year was before we had figured out any of this stuff, how to do Jewish holidays online on Zoom, if we have figured it out. But this year, we're well into COVID, and we are now in a position to be able to help people celebrate Purim digitally in ways that we couldn't last year. And here at Judaism Unbound, we actually have two initiatives that you can use to try to make this year's online Purim as meaningful and interesting and fun as possible. The first one, which is already out and available, is called the Megillah Project. You can find it at megillaproject.com. That's M-E-G-I-L-L-A-H project.com. And that is a collection of over 30 videos, each of which is exploring the Book of Esther story from a different angle. Hopefully you'll find everything that you can imagine wanting to find at the Magilla Project. The second initiative is a gathering that we are doing on Purim Eve. That's Thursday night, February 25th at 8.30 p.m. Eastern Time, 5.30 p.m. Pacific Time. It's called Purim Live, and you can find it at JudaismUnbound.com slash Purim 2021. We're putting this together with another organization called the Torah Studio. We're actually going to speak to its founder in a few weeks. And it is an unbound and unscrolled journey through the 10 chapters of the book of Esther. We have 10 different people, each of whom is taking us through one of the chapters in hopefully an interesting and fun way. So again, it's JudaismUnbound.com slash Purim 2021 to register to attend. And now let's go into our interview. As you'll remember, we're in this series of episodes looking at the Bible from all kinds of interesting angles. And you would think that a book about Stan Lee, one of the creators of the Marvel Comics universe, wouldn't exactly fit into a series about the Bible. And maybe it does and maybe it doesn't. We think it does, and you'll make your own judgment after our interview. But we're excited to talk to Abraham Reisman today. He's the author of a new book called True Believer, The Rise and Fall of Stan Lee. It's a biography of Stan Lee, the writer and editor who brought Marvel Comics to the world based on more than 150 interviews and thousands of pages of archival material. And in this conversation, we're going to talk a lot about Stan Lee and Judaism. They had a complex relationship. And along the way, we're going to make some connections to our series on the Bible and explore whether what we're looking at when we're looking at the Marvel Universe is a version of biblical material for our time. Our guest today, Abraham Reisman, is a journalist who mostly writes for New York Magazine and its subsite Vulture, dedicated to arts and culture. He's also done writing, video, and audio for other media outlets, including The Washington Post, The Wall Street Journal, The Boston Globe, and The New Republic. And of course, he is the author of this book, which has just come out, called True Believer, The Rise and Fall of Stan Lee. And he's also in the process of writing another biography called Ringmaster, The Life and Times of Vince McMahon. In the Jewish community, Abraham Reisman is a board member of one of our favorite Jewish magazines, Jewish Currents. So without further ado, Abraham Reisman, welcome to Judaism Unbound. It's so great to have you. Finally, I've been unbound and allowed
1: to be a Jew. This is the best thing that's ever happened to me. Well, I'm, <laughs> seriously, I'm very excited to to be here. I've been looking forward to this conversation.
0: Well, we have two. So, for those of our listeners who may not be mavens in the world of comics, I thought we could start by just, could you give us a very brief understanding of sort of what's the difference between Stan Lee's work at Marvel and the other superhero comics, especially the world of Superman, Batman, the DC world that we know of. Like what what was Stan Lee's real contribution?
1: Yeah, so in in thumbnail form, uh, Stan Lee was an editor and to some extent, writer of uh, these comics that came out uh, in the 1960s, the beginning of Marvel Comics. And there were a number of innovations that he put into the work that he did on those comics. So one of these things is his dialogue and narration. The best way to describe them is they were snappy, they were melancholic, they felt, you know had the, the whole range of human emotion. Now, you read them now and they come across as kind of stilted and and old-fashioned but at the time in the 1960s there just weren't comics that sounded like this and then uh, another thing was the idea of the Marvel universe not necessarily the characters. There's a lot of dispute about who came up with the characters, but the idea of having all these characters interact, you know, the star of one comic series can interact with the star of another comic series and they can form a team with a third person. And uh it was pretty from a business standpoint and to some extent, an artistic standpoint, it was a genius and extremely innovative idea. Um, but Marvel was the the outlet where you had, Stan, you know, appearing on the Dick Cavett show and giving speeches to stoned seniors at, uh, you know, seniors in college, not senior citizens. Uh, although that would be interesting. I'd love that audio tape. Um, talking to, you know, college students uh, around the country. Now so, they're
2: stoned seniors. Those stoned seniors yes. in college
1: are now stoned seniors <laughs> in the other sense. They Technically, yes, yeah, you're exactly right. You're exactly right. But anyway, um, so uh, his ability to sell Marvel was kind of unparalleled. There were very few people who could be that charismatic in the comics world. And so those were sort of the three big things that differentiated him. Um, and then, you know, there's the more complicated aspect, which is the stories themselves and the characters inside them. Um, there's a really good chance, although you can't prove one way or the other, there's there's certainly evidence that suggests that Jack Kirby, his primary writer-artist collaborator, was actually the person who came up with most of those characters or at least had the initial idea for those characters. Um, and so, you know, the fourth thing that's complicated that differentiated him was these were just great, original, flawed, just fascinating characters um, that were the pieces of IP, basically, intellectual property. And it's up in the air and probably will be forever up in the air and ambiguous who was actually responsible for the characters themselves.
0: So in this book about Stan Lee, there is a lot of material about the the Jewish connections of various kinds, which obviously we're going to explore in this podcast. But I was thinking a little bit about just situating the, the Jewish dimension of Stan Lee, in particular, because I'm thinking back to a few weeks ago when we actually had a conversation about Ella Emhoff, the daughter of Doug Emhoff, Kamala Harris's husband, who turns out to not claim her Jewishness. In other words, she Mm -hmm. doesn't understand herself to be Jewish. And she was actually listed on the Forward 50 Most Influential Jews of the Year. And then it turned out that she doesn't consider herself Jewish. And in reading your book, I understood that Stan Lee was very, uh, that that might very well have been the case for Stan Lee as well. And so the question becomes just before we even start talking about what it means to have Jewish connections between Stan Lee's work and the work of the other comics creators of that time, and you know, how how do we talk about the question of whether he actually was even Jewish?
1: Yeah, that's it's a tricky one. You know, I had one of these uh, <laughs> classic you finish the book and then you notice something that totally should have gone in the book, um and it's too late at that point. But um, there's a there's a line in Stan's memoir, you know, the word Jewish shows up three times in the entire memoir. One time it's describing a character in a comic. Um, and the other two are one. He describes his mother as an a uh, rather old fashioned Jewish lady. But then what really jumps out is when he talks about this moment when he and his wife were trying to adopt a child in the memoir. Stan says, we had another problem. My parents were Jewish and Joan is Episcopalian and in those days it was more difficult to adopt in a mixed marriage. My parents were Jewish. Not I'm Jewish. It's not I'm Jewish and she was Episcopalian and it was a mixed marriage, we couldn't do it. It's my parents were Jewish. He was the wicked son. This was, I mean, I don't mean that in a moral judgment way. I mean, from the Haggadah, the, the book that you read in, in Passover, there's this description of the four sons, these, these mythical four sons that, uh, talk about the Seder. And the wicked son, uh, is the one who says, what is this ceremony or holiday, whatever, to you? Despite the fact that it's implied the son is, is Jewish, He approaches Passover by saying, well, what does this mean to you? It doesn't mean anything to me. I'm not even really part of this community. Stan's approach to Jewishness, ultimately, I mean, once he was an adult, especially, was really just, hey, Jews, if you want this, go ahead. I mean, he was interviewed for this book by Simcha Weinstein called Up, Up, and Oy vey. um, And he told me about this. He called Stan, who was at that point when he made the call easier to get in touch with than he was by the end of his life. And said, you know, tell me about the Jewish themes in your work. And Stan's response was just, you know, I didn't put any Jewish themes in there. But if you think they're there, great. But he himself did not really identify as Jewish. I mean, he certainly wasn't involved in Jewish life at all. He was raised Jewish because, as as I found out in the research for my book, and I – his father was a very serious Jew. He was he was he had been raised Orthodox or he was observant uh, in the old country. I guess Orthodox is not necessarily the right word when you're describing uh, Jews back there, but uh, they were observant. And then uh, Stan's father was less observant, but was very serious about the idea of being Jewish. And he was a big Zionist. He was very concerned about the young state of Israel, and he was mad at Stan for Stan's lack of participation in jewish life and as stan's brother larry lieber uh told me um their father jack would just write letters to stan and uh larry especially stan saying you know this is in the 60s after stan had really achieved some success they would just say you know you have the success and you're not using it for the jews what's wrong with you um and yeah, I mean that's not a direct quote, but you know that no, I got was. I, uh, yeah. But that was that. According to Larry, that was the sentiment. Was you know you have the power to have an impact for the Jewish people, and you're not, and for shame.
2: Yeah, I mean, I really loved what you did in your book. I mean, the way I said it to you in a message, and the way I'd say it to our listeners is, your book is a very deep approach to. You know, early 20th century Jewishness and Jewish immigration from Eastern Europe. I mean, specifically from Romania. And I'm actually going to follow up on that in particular because I thought you did an amazing job profiling like a specific kind of European Jewish immigration because so often we talk about it as like this one big thing. Ah, 1880 to 1924, like Eastern European Jews. Right. Came here in a big crew that's roughly the same. And like you did a Yeah, at a job consistent a specific- rate the entire time. And <laughs> yeah. yeah, exactly. Um, but so we'll get there. But like, this is a book about a comic book figure. And it was one of, I read a lot of things about Turn of the... 19th to 20th century Jewishness, and I thought this was one of the more fascinating ways to look at that. And look, it's not that you gave some big, broad overview; like you you honed in very specifically. But it was a great reflection of how you know one person's backstory, and as we said, even one person who did not necessarily identify strongly as a Jew at the very least, and maybe didn't identify at all as a Jew. I mean, that's sort of murky from how I understand it. But like, that's. Interesting. So I want to, I want to ask about that. Like, oh, oh, and the other moment that on that front that called out to me related to his identity is like, you, I think there was a moment in the book where you said that he was asked a question about his New York Jewishness and no, he responded only. I, oh, you asked that question. Yeah.
1: Well, in 2015, when I started writing the initial profile of Stanley that formed the seed for this book, um, the only interview I was allowed was an email interview. And, um, one of the questions was, how did New York Jewish culture impact you and your writing? And he wrote back and it was, you know, about a sentence long and it was all about how great New York is no mention of the jewish aspect of that question no no response to it right.
2: and i and i caught that and i thought that that moment was a really important illustration of what you're talking about here um and yeah i mean the beautiful thing about this is that it's still very complicated because a Stan Lee continued in his life whether whatever his identity was i mean this this is the kind of thing where the where the folks who would voice criticism of us would say well sure he might not identify as jewish but there's so many pieces of his life that are aligned with lots of other Jews of his time period's life experiences. But so that's the case. And the universe pun intended, the universe he inhabited, the comics universe that he designed, and the 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 comics people of the time were predominantly Jews and predominantly European Jewish immigrants or children of European Jewish immigrants from that time period. So basically, I'd love to hear from you, like, what happened with Stan Lee's family, which were the Liebers when they immigrated. Yeah. Like what was the deal there? What can it teach us about Jewish immigration? And to some extent, as an author of a of a book that is not like, you know, I don't know, quote, a a Jewish book primarily. I mean it is also, I would argue, a Jewish book. But like as somebody who took on the project of giving a Jewish window into a book that is much more than that, what was that experience like?
1: I when I approached this book I wanted it to dig into whatever Stan's Jewishness was. As much as I possibly could, and I, I was not anticipating being able to find that much because I knew from that profile before that he didn't really talk much about Jewishness, and he'd mentioned that he had a bar mitzvah, but he, you know, forgotten everything about it and had crammed for it right beforehand. And it was because his father made him do it. So I didn't figure I'd find that much, but I was reading um, a PhD thesis that was given to me by a very smart author who knows a lot about Romanian Jews. She gave me her PhD thesis, and there was a just an offhand mention that there was trouble during this period of high anti-Semitism in Romania. There was trouble in the town of Bodishan, and that was—I knew that was where Stan's dad was from. And there was no other information about it. It cited a different source. The other source was a contemporaneous source that just said there was trouble in Bodishan and didn't elaborate. I became fixated on this. I wanted to know more. So I, I found a Romanian researcher and just said, could you look through Romanian archives and see if there's anything about this, this whatever happened in Bodashan? And she came back with some, this summary of her research uh, with citations in it that just blew my mind. I mean, it, it was this very detailed description of this pogrom that was, you know, luckily not that. Murderous. There were not that many people who died in it, but it was very much, uh, a, a pogrom. I mean, this was very, Without getting into the whole story, basically some Romanian students who were arguing about Jews because there was this question of whether Jews should be allowed in the student union, student society. These Romanian students then, um, you know, get in a fight. Then they all go eat and probably drink a lot. Um, and then they come out and they just smash up the Jewish part of town, which was substantial. It was about, the town was about half Jewish. I mean, it was a city, really. It was a small city, but half Jewish and half Gentile. And certainly for me, I feel like that in part of the story of Stan Lee really established some of the relationship between him and his dad, because his dad, you know, grew up observant in a half Jewish city where Romanians were prone to harassing and, you know, physically attacking the Jewish population and then lives through not just in his local Berg lives through this, this, you know, increasing series of humiliations and, um, law, anti-Semitic laws and violence and pamphleteering. So, of course, he's, when you're feeling, when you're receiving that kind of anti-Semitic hatred, people often go in one of two directions. Either you just go, screw it. This is not worth it. I'm just, I'm not Jewish anymore. I'm just going to be something else. Or what happened with Jack's, uh, with Stan's dad, Jack, uh, or Yanku Ern Lieber, as he was born, which is he became very cemented in Jewishness. Like he was very passionate about it, and I would presume, maybe this is just a baseless inference, that a lot of that had to do with living through that kind of anti-Semitism at an impressionable young age. I mean, he was he was four years old when the Bodochon pogrom happened. You know, that's old enough to remember something and young enough that it's going to really have an impact on you. So through research, that kind of research. Oh, another thing I stumbled on that blew my mind that existed was this memoir by this guy who was actually a relatively popular Jewish writer at the, in the early 20th century, early to mid, uh, a guy named Marcus Eli Ravage. And it turns out he was from the same county as uh, Stan's mother. And it doesn't feature Stan or Stan's family, rather. But it's astounding that there was this document about life in this very specific location, contemporaneous to Stan's mother and grandparents' time in that county. And, you know, it's a testament to the fact that there's a lot of Jewish history out there and you don't know the half of it. You don't know the one one thousandth, one millionth of it.
2: To follow up on that, so... We've got this story that has an incredible amount of detail. I mean, you've got this pogrom that has all these journal, all these newspaper articles, etc. And, you know, this family is one tiny piece in that sort of broader population. And then a bunch of people, I mean, this isn't surprising. A huge amount of people from that area leave. Yeah. And you have a, you have a quote that was one of my favorite quotes of the book. I'm not going to get it exactly right, but you talk about how, like, for lots of people, Emigrating from Europe into the states, like they're from places where you could be doing that for many reasons. You could be doing it because you're Jewish and there's like some oppression, or you could be doing it because you're not Jewish, and like life is also crappy for you for different reasons like, but in Romania, you look at the data and you're like, what was it like it was like ninety percent or some huge we're, we're, yeah, some huge percentage were just it was Jews Yeah, like uh, of the people who left Romania, almost all of them were Jews. like basically the only reason at the time that you would be leaving was anti-Semitism or just life is hard for Jews. So that was, for me, as somebody who just reads a lot of this material, that was a level of detail that was fascinating to me. And it it made me crack open this monolith of, of European immigrants that is unhelpful. So that's number one. But then, you know, these people immigrate and then they're in, you know, the United States. A lot of them are in New York. And I guess my next question is like sort of as a segue into the next era of Stan's really of Jack's life, but then of his son Stan Lee's life, what sort of happens next? I mean, you had like a funny, but I think beautiful little moment where you talked about how like these people sort of bring pastrami to the United States of all things. Like that, the origin story of pastrami is like Romanian Jewish immigrants. Cool. I, that's sort of a trivial thing. But like a lot of these people end up in community with each other. I mean, you mentioned two of them find each other and get married, even though they didn't know each other in Romania back in the day. And then they have Stan Lee. Like, what happens next? And how does that take us into the era where, you know, a lot of not just the Romanian Jewish immigrants, but sort of the broader European Jewish immigrants start to make waves in this comics world?
1: Right. Well, so the story of the early comics industry is an overwhelmingly Jewish story. It it was one of those industries like the garment industry that involved people who, if you made them up, would seem like anti-Semitic stereotypes. There were some very shady businessmen who were, you know, barred from being involved in mainstream publishing. Um, and they wanted to be for one reason or another or had experience in it. And because they couldn't get jobs at the classy publishing places, they stuck with stuff that predated comics and then turned into comics or influenced comics, such as pulp magazines and what was called nudies and smooshes, which I could describe, but the name sort of tells <laughs> you all you need to know. Um, and it, it, this was a population of people who were ready and raring to go in business, but for various reasons ended up in this extremely disreputable industry. So that means by the time Stan Lee gets his first job in comics, working for his cousin-in-law and supervised by his uncle, which is another thing, it was very much a family immigrant business, uh, the comics business, and specifically the publisher that Stan worked at, by then, you know, 1939, 1940, all the bosses are Jewish, all the editors are Jewish, uh, most of the creators are Jewish. These comics were being made by Jews, but they were all about, you know, Aryan Superman. Like there, there there were not Jewish figures really in uh the comics themselves, the characters. So, because it's this Jewish immigrant industry, there are a lot of things that you can see parallels in with other industries where that's true. Um a lot of labor exploitation. Again, this is you 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 don't want to sound anti-Semitic. It's not because they were Jews, but it just so happened that a lot of Jewish businessmen were had extremely, uh, you know, in those kinds of industries, were very exploitative. Comics is a terrible industry for labor and still is today. You know, these are companies where For example, Stan's publisher, uh, which was owned by this guy, Martin Goodman, it went by a lot of different names. So I usually just call it Goodman's Companies for straight, you know, just to be straightforward. Um, You know, Goodman's Company employed a bunch of people with the last name Goodman and a number of people with the last names of spouses of people who worked for, of people named Goodman. So, you know, there's a lot of stuff coming together here. And then there's also, you know, the creatives, which were people who Stan was working with not in a boss. I mean, he sometimes was their boss, but these were people who he was working with, such as Jack Kirby, who was mentioned before. You know, he was very much a Jew and he was very proud of being a Jew. He was not, you know, Jack was not this is Jack Kirby. There's two Jacks here. Kirby, I'll just call him, um, was not very religious, it, rather observant. You know, he, he, he was not an Orthodox guy, but Judaism really played into his work. I mean, he has all this religious work. He has this amazing, uh, drawing of Jacob wrestling the angel where the angel looks like this. Uh, massive robot alien and it, it's, it's weirdly very affecting. Uh, Jack made costumes for Purim spiels in, in, in Los Angeles, uh, where he, he lived for most of the latter years of his life. And that's a real stark contrast to Stan, who was making work, but was not directly putting in a lot of Jewish stuff. That said, he was surrounded by people who often did, and it's complicated by the fact that the characters weren't Jewish. I could talk about this all day, but you're exactly right to note that there was this enormous, or at least densely populated, Jewish community that was in comics, that was in New York, uh, and that had come from Eastern Europe.
0: Yeah, so I really want to start to go there a little bit in in that, you know, it's funny because we're in this series of episodes looking at various manifestations of the Bible, And one of the things that comes up is where do the Bible stories come from? And we've talked about and we're talking about that there are these Babylonian myths of the surrounding area. And then they get kind of Judaized and turned into biblical material. And one of the questions is like, well, what does it matter? You know, does it matter the backstory? Does it matter if Stanley... was really drawing from Jewish experiences, but unconsciously, or he was conscious, but denied it. Does it matter if other people like uh, Jack Kirby were more more upfront about it, more excited about uh, their Jewishness? Or, you know, my grandfather, by the way, uh, went to the same high school as uh, Schuster and Siegel, you know, the inventors of Superman. Oh, so there's always okay. this question. Yeah. So there's always this question in our family, like how Jewish were that, You know, that kind of question. And so I'm curious what you think about that. I mean, for me, the most live one these days is, is Spider-Man because I have been thinking a lot about this next era of Judaism. And, you know, in some of my musings, it's like, well, in this, and and part of this, I'm drawing from a rabbi, Yitz Greenberg, who talks about this next era of Judaism, right? And, he, and the idea is that God sort of withdraws from daily life in the world in the different eras. And that as God withdraws, human beings have to shoulder more of God's responsibilities. And just at that same time, you know, human beings are getting more ability through technology and other ways. So we can shoulder that responsibility. And when I've thought about it, what does that mean? Mean ethically, I've often said, well, it's the Spider-Man principle: with great power comes great responsibility, and that that actually, in the same way that the the lesson learned from the Exodus is, you were slaves in Egypt, so you should make sure nobody else is ever a slave. You know, the lesson learned from Spider-Man is, you know, now that you have the power of a more powerful being that you might have thought of as only God's power in the past, now you have to have the level of responsibility that you might have expected from God going into the future. And so I'm just sort of wondering whether it actually maybe matters how we understand the relationship between this work and Judaism, because actually they're really important ethical principles that come out of the world of comics and that we might actually take really seriously. Like I I sometimes feel like it's cheapening it to call this the Spider-Man principle, but we all know it from Spider-Man and it's actually pretty powerful when you take it seriously.
1: Yeah, I mean, one of the writers of uh Spider-Man, I mean, there've been a lot of them, but one of the more notable ones, Brian Michael Bendis, who's another Cleveland Jew, he was talking about with great power comes great responsibility, which of course is a misquote, but that's how quotes work, you know. That <laughs> phrase he spoke about uh in our conversation and said you could build a religion around it. And it sounds like you concur. I mean, it's true. It's it's a We don't know whether Stan came up with it, actually. It may well have been him lifting from a number of – or any number of other, you know, quotes from notable people that had that phrase and concept in it. But he certainly popularized it. And it is something that is worth considering. I think about it all the time. I mean, it gets at the nature of the privilege conversation where you're saying, okay, well, what are the advantages – Uh, And and structural bigotry Where it's like what are the structural aspects Of society that have allowed you To get ahead and what Do you do more importantly, what do you do with the advantages you have? I think you're right that with great power comes great responsibility is the kind of idea we should be applying when you say, okay, I have a platform, or I have an ability, or I have money, whatever, and I'm going to use those advantages, that power I have, to good ends for, you know, helping other people and not just myself. And yeah, Judaism, I guess, could use a fair dose of that. It's not completely alien, but you know phrasing it in that way maybe would be something. i I think we definitely go too far. You know, there's this idea, maybe it was popularized by Michael Shabon, maybe will Eisner, you know, it was kind of in the ether, but especially with the advent of Michael Shabon writing Cavalier and Clay in in two thousand, I think it was two thousand. You know, you get this new wave. ...of consensus, not just in the Jewish world, but kind of in the world more generally about Jews, which is that uh, the comic industry and the superhero fiction genre are inherently Jewish. Now, I, I think Shabon was right, actually, about a lot of stuff, but I think people took what Shabon or Will Eisner were saying... And kind of brought it to a level of general acceptance that I think is not necessarily well-founded. You know, I can comment on various different creators, but, you know, Stan is the one that I have thought about the most. And I just don't see anything uniquely Jewish in his work. Does that mean his Jewish upbringing didn't affect his work? Who knows? I don't know. But um there is very little in there that couldn't just as equally have been attributed to any number of the non Jewish books he read growing up, which were much more of an influence on him than, say, the Torah. I, I wouldn't, I don't know whether it matters, but I think if you're going to have serious literary criticism, which comics deserves, if for no other reason than the fact that it's deeply influential and we should look at texts, even if we think they're childish, uh, if they've had a certain degree of influence, if we're going to be serious about this stuff, we have to you know, not just assume everything falls into one box. And I don't think if you're a Jew, everything you create is itself inherently Jewish.
2: So that's really helpful. And I, I want to do something you do in the book a decent amount, which is you sort of break the fourth wall sometimes and you talk to your readers. You, you use I, you, use the, you talk about your own place in the story. Um, I, I'm going to do that with our listeners. Like, hey, listeners, we're going to break that that invisible. Great. I don't know. Well, um, and so we're in a unit of episodes and we're talking about bible and i could clearly understand a listener this far into the episode being like okay cool conversation friends <laughs> like what, like is this part of the bible thing is this a is this a meander away from it and i'm not going to fully answer that i think it's whichever of those you would like um i do think there are lots of ways that this connects and i want to narrow in specifically on Marvel Comics. I know it had different names, but like there is a huge debate to the point of lawsuits about who came up with the characters in the Marvel Cinematic Universe. Now, you you said before, and I think this is is very important. Like the MCU, the 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 concept of this interconnected universe. I, I do think, if I'm hearing you correctly, that that Stan Lee deserves a great deal of credit for that and by the way as somebody who has become deeply embedded as somebody who cares about any of this largely because there is a movie system of all of these but like I owe Stan Lee a debt of gratitude whether he came up with the individual characters or not that said there is this huge debate over you know, I'm going to use the phrase, who wrote the comics, because I want to echo who wrote the Bible by Richard Elliott Friedman, right? Um, and so there's this whole... Th- and honestly, it, it matters less to me all the ins and outs of that, although I'm kind of on team Jack per- Jack Kirby came up with the characters. For, any- for anybody who wants to know my allegiance, not that you do. Um, but there's this debate about whether Jack Kirby came up with all these characters, or Stan Lee did, or what the amount of each of those was, all that stuff. And my question is, or maybe my assertion is, I think that that debate... The reason why it's going to the level of you know lawsuits and others, it, like I think it's a religious debate. Now I think it's also a financial yeah. debate. Um, I think that this this cinematic universe is a is a kind of religion, and I don't say that trivially. Like I actually think that part of why Stan Lee's move worked, like part of why the Marvel Cinematic Universe or the Marvel Comics universe at first. Worked is because it created this like religious kind of system. It's like the Bible, we call it, you know, the good book or whatever. But I think the reason that the Bible works is because it's actually many books in conversation with one another, and characters from one pop up in another one in a different way. And, you know, one author of one book sort of takes an earlier character in a different direction, or like that's. What the MCU is, and I think that as somebody who is connected to these movies, I'm I'm struck at the resemblance to religion, and I think that you know you've even gotten very angry emails, and to the point of if I'm, I think you said like death threats before. Only one so far as of this taping. <laughs> but only yes. one. Okay, that's that's a big deal though. I, I'm, <laughs> yeah, I, of course, yeah. like don't wish that on you or anybody else but like i don't think that's because people are like being dumb and like oh they care about comics more than they should like on the one hand, i don't want anybody sending death threats on the other I get why people would feel that level of connection to these books. These do—these are commentaries on our world. These do have a huge influence on a huge number of people in a way that is not different from the Bible. And honestly, if we were to measure the number of people in the last, like, 10 years who have been impacted by Marvel through any of the movies— Versus the number who have been impacted by the Bible. I think the Bible wins, but I think it's actually like kind of close. So I'd love to hear from you what's going on there, whether that's the relationship between, you know, the different sources and the whole Kirby-Lee debate, because that's another thing, you know, who wrote both sets of documents matters, and the ways in which this sort of resembles religion.
1: Well, in many ways, they're the same thing because um, the two religious questions you're talking about here, you're onto something there because you have a religious belief about who wrote the Bible um, and that plays directly into your religious belief about the individuals in the Bible and about the um, people who have conveyed the Bible. So too, in comics and in Marvel, you have... Uh, The question of who was really Behind these stories and and more Majorly who was behind the initial characters And you have This love of the text And the text I would say at Marvel Includes the meta text Like Stan is a character In a lot of these comics not You know a massive percentage of them but like Also Stan's name was on the comics Even ones he wasn't writing for decades Afterward they said Stan Lee presents on them And so Stan Lee is a character in the Marvel Universe, both literally and and figuratively. And because you believe that figure wrote your Bible, wrote or at least was the progenitor of the beginning of your religious texts, you're going to have very strong feelings about that character and about the role that character played in creating this thing that means an enormous amount to you. It's been interesting to watch people's criticisms because... I think a lot of it is just purely how dare you insult this religious figure that I believe in. Who, who, if we're talking about the Bible in context of Marvel, he is the the Hashem of, of that story. I mean, he's the God. I mean, he's the guy who, if you're taking Stan the character as part of the larger Marvel story, he's the one who was the initial scribe, who was the one who received the word and put it out there. That's, that's, it hurts when you poke that. If, if somebody has a religious belief and here's another person say, well, that figure that you love so much, who is the core of your belief system was actually a schmuck. Not that I'm saying the book is saying that it's just, that's the perception these people have. That's a figure that means a tremendous amount to them. As you say, not just in the context of like, well, that's a celebrity I like, but this is the, the inception point. He is the inception point of this, this, text and its accompanying belief ideas that just are a tremendous building block of people's personalities but also there's the pre the sources you you are the documentary thesis is interesting to think about I had not thought about that until you said that and that's very wise it is true that you have you know the 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 text that is the Marvel story as in the like 80 year 80 plus year long uh, intertwined narrative uh, that is the Marvel universe like scripture it's it's assembled from different texts and different authors most like I mean now I'm revealing my beliefs but it's an assemblage of different texts sometimes with repeating characters but with their own perspectives and agendas and you bring them together into this thing that is sometimes contradictory, sometimes borderline incoherent or outright incoherent, but that melange, that, that you know, combination of all these texts and all these different authors leads to something that is tremendously powerful.
0: For me, it really does uh, hold together. Cause I remember like, I wasn't a huge fan of the Marvel comics like Lex, maybe before the movies started. And I remember just kind of right you know, these, these worlds like smashing together, like in the case of Thor, it's the gods of Asgard, you know, the, the Norse gods. And in the case of Spider-Man, it's, you know, some kid who got stung by a spider. And somehow these totally different worlds end up the same world. And it's it's, it's just as I'm thinking about it, it just strikes me. It's like, well, for people who struggle to understand what these academic Bible scholars are talking about in terms of what the Bible really is, it's actually really helpful to see it as a version of the Marvel Universe, where all these different stories got smushed together into a semi-coherent single world. But then when you look at it really closely, it's not that coherent.
1: You could argue that you know the Bible is, is the closest thing to an analogous work to the Marvel Universe. I haven't thought of I mean I I often talk about the Marvel Universe being relatively sui generis, you know, there aren't really that many precedents, but if you're gonna pick a precedent that the, the Bible itself may well be that.
2: Yeah, and you you even have uh, sorry, I just I really want to just keep rolling with this cuz even if we don't get it totally right, like this will be a worthwhile thing for folks to ponder. Like I, I you get even it. have like canon and not in both like the word canon is used a ton in like fantasy and sci-fi conversations and even in this Marvel even in the set of comics that are created by Marvel, say, like the X-Men are not in the Marvel Cinematic Universe, right? Like like there's uh, at least not yet. Uh, maybe that'll. Maybe one day that'll happen. And and from my perspective, you could compare that to you know books that didn't make it in the Bible that were still floating around at similar times. You know books we've talked about on the podcast like Jubilees or Maccabees or whatever. And people always sort of smile when I say this and think I'm being cutesy. But like to me, this reflects like an actual religion. It's not just that. Oh, cool. There's similarities. Like. We inhabit a society where people relate to all sorts of things, whether it's fandom in the world of comics, whether it's pop culture, um, whether it's sports, whether, like we inhabit a world where these realms serve a religious purpose in people's lives. They construct their communities around them. They build their forms of meaning around them. They even sometimes have calendrical moments in the year, holidays, whatever related to them. Like, I think that this is really important, and, San, and so San I'm Di- curious. Well, yeah, go ahead. Yeah, so go I was ahead. just thinking
1: San Diego Comic Con. I mean, that's that's you know, if, if I'm thinking about the religious aspect of the Marvel Universe and superhero fiction, yeah, you can think about something like San Diego Comic Con, which is this pilgrimage. I mean, it's 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 the comics equivalent of the Hajj.
2: The Hajj being the pilgrimage to Mecca. Sorry,
1: the pilgrimage <laughs> to Mecca. Yeah, that that is required in Islam. You are supposed to at some point in your life go to San Diego Comic-Con and have that experience and commune with that. And speaking of commune, when you go there, you're with people who share your at least passion for these texts, if not the exact same moral or lifestyle beliefs as them. You're all brought together by the fact that a certain set of texts or at least kind of texts are really important to you. And Passion for a text that informs the way you live and that features certain leaps of faith, such as the authorship, you know, attributing authorship to Stan Lee. Um, You're talking about a religion at that point. You you may or at least the building blocks of one.
2: And by the way, I want to say, like. I actually don't think that comics are somehow this like dumbed down, less sophisticated version of the Bible. I think it's actually the same. Like you could, you could do the thing where we did before where we go, ah, Spider-Man with great power comes great responsibility. This is our core text. We're going to build a Seder around it. That idea at the core, is it as good, better, worse than, you know, we were slaves in Egypt? I don't know. It's certainly like in that, Zone for me. I think it's a great point. And somebody else could come along and point to all of the terrible violence in the comics, just as there's terrible violence in the Bible, or they could like decide to make a religion out of one of the villains, right? Like, that's not impossible. Like, there's all sorts of problems that could arise too, which to me is not a sign of, oh, we should all stay away from comics. It's, ah, we should be introspective about Bible and the ways that we're already doing all of that with Bible. And we should think about, you know, in a world where descriptively people are operating with both of these things as religious systems, how do we, you know, navigate meaning making and community building as opposed to like pretending that one of the realms, comics, is not religion?
1: Well, and... I will say, talk about worshiping uh, a bad character. The bigger problem, and this is the problem with any religion, is um, the institutional forces and individuals who profit from that religion and who have a vested interest in having maximal believers and minimum doubt. In the case of the Marvel Universe, that's Disney. I mean, Disney owns Marvel. And Disney has a vested interest in people having a certain set of interpretations of this, you know, biblical text of the Marvel universe. For me, that's the bigger danger. The bigger danger is if this becomes some kind of religion, which is hypothetical, but who knows, having it be decentralized and having it be something where it's built on rigorous thought and interpretation and questioning and debate, I would much prefer to see that then a model where it's like Disney is, if we're going to use a different religion as a metaphor, you know, Disney is the Catholic church and everything sort of comes from Disney and you'll have like a few heretics here and there, but pretty much everything is within the purview of this, this entity that has too much power and is impenetrable in a lot of ways. So getting into, you know, my anti-corporate activist. So I'll, I'll shut up now, but yes.
0: It's funny because as we're talking about this, I'm also thinking about the flip side of the religious experience, which I think for me and I think for a lot of our listeners is how we feel about Judaism. And I think also for me, and I don't know about our listeners, is how I feel about the world of comics in that I'm not that into it as a religion, meaning like I'm not looking to obsess over it. I'm looking to participate in it to some extent and to take from it a more moderate experience. And sometimes the feeling of these, you know, San Diego Comic-Con folks makes you feel like you can't really appreciate this stuff just as kind of a casual. You know, there's a, even a even an insulting way to say you're just a casual. I mean, I you also see this in Star Trek and Star Wars and sci-fi and everything. And I'm trying to think like who the where the corporate danger really is because to some extent, right, the what Disney really needs is a lot of people like me who are willing to, you know, who just want to see the movies. Like that's probably where a lot of the money is, right, and just sort of the mass appeal, but it's like a sub-religious appeal. And then there's the people who are kind of the really the most uh, dedicated. They basically devote their whole life to it. And I, I don't know, I guess my question on the corporate level is, is that who, which one is Disney really most benefiting from? And, and I guess back to Stan Lee, you know, his life didn't end all that well. And I'm curious to what extent some of these forces were really at the heart of, why his later years were, were difficult or it was for other reasons altogether?
1: Yeah. Well, I will say before I get into the meat of answering your question, one thing it sparked for me, you're talking about Stan's uh, very difficult and, um, and difficult to know about and read about uh, and learn about uh, final years. And especially the last year and a a year and a half of his life after his wife died uh, and before he died, there was uh, a lot of abuse. And one thing that I kept thinking about while I was researching his final days was, I wonder if this would have gone differently if he was involved in the Jewish community. There were no institutions that took meaningful action to help him or save him. He was suffering out in the open. Like there was, there were news reports about how bad things were. And yet, Marvel and his uh, his second Marvel uh, post Marvel company, which was still going then, Pow Entertainment. Other than like vague issues, you know, vague statements of like we stand with Stan, hope Stan's okay. You know, they didn't do anything, or if they did do anything, it was top secret and accomplished nothing. Would there have been an element of we look after our own if he had been involved in the Jewish community and in Jewish institutions? Greatest Generation guy. Child of immigrants, this is the profile, the kind of person that Jewish institutions often excel at stepping in to help standardsers wasn't involved in that world, so no one was coming to rescue him from that,
2: which is a mixed reflection on Jewish institutions. I want to say like you could hear that as a good thing that like as a general rule, Jewish institutions would be ready to help somebody, but like the fact that it requires sort of years of loyalty or fidelity. When this is a person that the Jewish community has claimed in all these articles, ah, Stan Lee, born Stan Lieber, the Jew, the Jew, the Jew. like yeah. if, if, if that person is not somebody that you'll step in for, except for when they've sort of proven their devotion to you, that's not only good.
1: Yeah, that's actually a great point. I, I'd only been thinking about the counterfactual, but you're right. The factual way it did happen doesn't speak well necessarily of Jewish institutional life. It gets into the question of, you know, is Jewish life sort of like your retirement fund? You pay into it and then eventually you live off of it. I, I don't know. That's necessarily the model we want to have. But you do make the good point that, like, if we're going to claim Stan, then we had a responsibility to him. And I speak broadly as the Jewish population. Um, and that didn't happen. And related to the casuals thing, I think you are looking at a world where – The corporate structure, the institutional structure that supports comics and supports superhero fiction does rely on having casuals, people who just come to see the movies and don't necessarily have a ton of deep knowledge about them or about their source material. But that's not their bread and butter. Similarly to Jewish institutional structures – You look at the fact that, what is it, 70 to 80%, depending on who you talk to, of Jewish American voters uh, voted against Trump. And yet, you wouldn't know that if you went to the Conference of Presidents and asked people, can you denounce Trump? Like, will you make a statement? Most of these organizations are going to go, can we uh, sort of avoid the subject? Or they're going to be... Pro Trump. And they're going to be like, I, I feel no shame about saying we're, we're big on Trump. And the point is that's not representative of the majority at all. That's representative of 30%. But they have a belief that that 30% is a base. That 30% is where the action is. And that 30% is where the future is. Because those are the people who are going to be with you through hell and high water. Now, I'm not saying that's necessarily accurate, but that's the mentality. And it's the same mentality that goes into marketing stuff to geeks. You know, you make it accessible enough that you can be a casual and come in. But once you're in, it's all about leveling you up and doing everything they can to make you an
2: addict. So we're rounding out the conversation. I'd sort of just put the ball in your court. Are there any pieces that you shifted uh, is there anything that that was affected in you in writing this book related to comics and your own relationship to them related to jewishness Judaism and your relationship to that like what what would you sort of autobiographically look back on as having happened to you in writing this book
1: It got me rolling on thinking about my own Jewish heritage. And also it got me thinking a lot about the parts of Jewishness that I've walked away from in comparison to my great, great grandfather and the parts that I embrace. Because to one extent or another, we're all the wicked son. We're all the one saying, Hey, what did that thing mean to you in the past? As opposed to, Well, what does it mean to me in the present? Because sometimes the thing's extinct or you just yourself decided not to engage with that thing. But the fact is, you're still saying, what does this thing mean to you, not me? You know, What are the aspects of Jewish identity in life that I've made a choice to differentiate myself from and say, there are people who do that and they're not me?
2: Thank you so much, Abraham Reisman, for joining us. This has been a fantastic conversation.
1: This has been really great. I really appreciate you taking the time and this is the kind of stuff I could talk about all day. So thanks.
2: And thanks so much to all of you out there for listening. We hope you've enjoyed this episode, and we hope that you will continue enjoying episodes in this series on Bible. It's been so fun so far, and we've got a bunch of really great episodes on the way in the next few weeks. Before we go to all the different ways that you can be in touch with us, which we will get to, we love hearing from all of you. Before we get to that, we want to encourage you to check out our Purim offerings this year. We have two One is the Megillah Project, which you can access at megillahproject.com. That's M-E-G-I-L-L-A-H project.com. It's all sorts of videos related to the Megillah, the Book of Esther. Um, And there's scholars and artists and all sorts of folks checking it out from different perspectives. You won't want to miss these videos. Watch one, watch five, watch 30, watch as many as you can. They're really, really fantastic. The other offering we have this year is Purim Live, which, you know, as the name suggests, is a live experience of Purim, which you can be a part of on February 25th, the evening of Thursday, February 25th. And uh, we're going to have an amazing time in Zoom together. There's a bunch of really awesome people who will be presenting each chapter of the book of Esther, but from very different experimental kinds of approaches. And, uh, you know, one chapter will be upbeat, the next will be a little bit serious. We're going to go all over the place because Purim is all about turning every which way upside down, topsy-turvy. We're going to do that. Hang out with us. You can sign up for that by going to judaismunbound.com slash Purim 2021. So, now the different ways you can be in touch with us because we do love hearing from you. There's our Facebook page, our Instagram, our Twitter. All of those are at Judaism Unbound. That's how you find them on the various applications. There's our website, judaismunbound.com. And there are our email addresses, dan at judaismunbound.com and lex at judaismunbound.com. The last request we always make is that we deeply appreciate any amount of financial donation that you can send our way. And you can do that via judaismunbound.com slash donate on either a monthly recurring basis or just as a one-time gift. So thank you so much for listening. And with that, this has been... Judaism Unbound.